the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, my name's Richard Moore and I'm with Bono. Would that, be Bono? Mate- would that be Matteo Bono, the former Lamprey professional? That's not who came to mind. No, it's, he's, Bono was the only other person I could think of who wears sunglasses indoors, as you are doing, Daniel. Uh, because the, it is actually Daniel Freib. Uh, there should be a link, um, because I am half Irish, but still haven't got my bloody passport. Anyway, that's another... Irish passport office, if you're listening. Uh, my mind's still missing as Two well, years, anyway. two years it's taken... Oh, dear, dear, dear. Well, Daniel, um, we convene for the first of uh, two times this week. We're going to join up with Lionel on Thursday afternoon after the uh, presentation of the route for the Tour de France for next year and the Tour de France fam, the first Tour de France fam as well, being presented in Paris on Thursday. I'll not be there, unfortunately, um, uh, for reasons I'll explain a bit later on, but uh, we're convening uh, on Monday today to discuss the uh, Il Lombardia as Tour of Lombardy is now known and a few other little news bits and pieces Lionel's taking a well-earned break after putting in a, a great shift on the women's tour last week we produced nightly episodes from the women's tour he was with Rose Manley and uh, Lizzie Banks and they did a, a great job um, I, I followed the race entirely through the podcast and it was very very entertaining and we've had some great feedback on it so thanks very much everybody who enjoyed that and who's been in touch. Um, how are you, Daniel? Uh, you look like you're back in Germany. Yes, I am, Rich. I've got a bit of a cold, so apologies in advance to the listeners if my voice sound, if I sound a little bit huskier and more sultry than usual. <laughs> I'm, sure there'll be, I'm sure there'll be lots of emails about that. Um, but uh, yeah, have you, is your season pretty much finished now after the World Championships? Is that it for you? Yes, it is, Rich. Very much so. No more travelling. I know you're, you've got a trip planned. I'm very envious of that. You're going to see our our friend of the podcast, uh, Filippo Pozzato, who's put on this extravaganza. Um, Chira and I have been calling, well, there's a gravel race among these races that are mm. being... Uh, uh, organised by Filippo Pozzato. Of course, Filippo Pozzato used to be affectionately known as Il Pavone di Sandrigo, the peacock of Sandrino, Sandrigo. And um, yeah, we've been calling his gravel race La Pavonata Bianca, the white peacock sort of shoot. But there's the Giro, de, Giro del Veneto, Veneto Classic, all a little bit confusing. If I had one piece of advice to give to Filippo, it, it would be uh, maybe with the names of two of these races, Giro del Mix Veneto up a bit. and Veneto Classic might confuse a few people. There is a danger of a bit of congestion at the end of the season in Italy, isn't there? I mean, does the racing in Italy ever stop? There, There is a race happening as, we, as we're talking now. Um, there were numerous races last week. It just this late autumn period in Italy, there's this flurry of very beautiful one day races and Pozzato with his new three new races this week. I'm, I'm heading out there tomorrow, staying in Bassano del Grappa a place that we stayed a couple Wonderful. of years ago at the Giro. Wonderful place. Um, a bit, a bit of news, he's, a bit of news on Bassano del Grappa, Rich, because um, an event that you're very fond of, I was reading earlier, the Tiramisu World Cup happened at the weekend and the gentleman who won that was from Bassano del Grappa, which shouldn't be a surprise because it's, it's the right part of the world for Tiramisu. Um, well, it's more or less the right part of the world for tiramisu but yeah did it have a hint of grappa in it that is tiramisu should i investigate in the in the true sort of spirit of the cycling podcast should i do some on the ground investigations this week well you you were not very enamored with the tiramisu world cup so i was i was just hungry i was just hungry and i didn't think tiramisu was uh, an adequate there was also the uh, there was also the panettone world cup at the weekend but we won't i won't cover that in this week's podcast it's (laughs) true true story though but yeah, this Pozzato is extending the Italian season even longer. And I'm looking forward to going out there and experiencing these races and also riding his new Grand Fondo on Saturday as well. So I'm sure ah, I it's can the come Grand back Fondo bore, you're doing, bore not, not the pro race. Bore y'all with that. No, not, not at the moment, Daniel. I'll give that another year. I'll be there. Um, well, listen, let's uh, crack on with some news, shall we? As I said, we'll be talking mainly about. Il Lombardia, the final monument of the season in this episode. It was won by Tadej Pogacar, head of Fausto Masnada, and Adam Yates uh, completed the podium. Uh, an attack from Pogacar on the Paso di Ganda really uh, allowed him to 
take the initiative in the race and there was a bit of a stalemate behind that we'll talk about in this episode but um, Pogacar in winning Tour de France and Lombardia and indeed Liège-Bastogne-Liège earlier in the year joins a very select club. Another big race at the weekend, a a race that has kind of come in and out of fashion, Paris Tour. It was a sprinter's classic. It's not a sprinter's classic anymore but it was won by a sprinter. So there you go. Arnaud de Mar, um, a fantastically entertaining race. It has changed in its character quite a lot in the last few years. It does use these dirt roads now between Paris and Tours. Starts and nowhere near Paris. Well, this is another <laughs> another fashion. Um, but yeah, the, it, it's become a very, very um, entertaining and interesting race. And we'll, we'll speak a bit about it as well because it was a great win by de Mar after a disappointing season for him. And... Uh, you know, we occasionally see signs or indications that DeMar is and can be far more than just a sprinter, and he kind of proved it at the weekend. It has been a slightly disappointing season, or certainly he's been spun as much, but I was checking earlier, I think he's won nine races nonetheless. Um, not too bad. And if you look at his sort of ranking points or his overall results across the year, I, I would argue that he's possibly reverted regress to to the norm for Arno Demar. It's kind of been a, a pretty standard season in Arno Demar's career and last year was the standout really. Expectations raised by the the Giro last year perhaps, but yeah, I mean the thing about Demar is he never really gives up. You know, some at the World Championships, we saw him at the Vuelta, some at the World Championships uh, and saw him at Pyru Bay as well and he he never gives up. He always finishes all these races and uh, well, he's got his got his reward in the end. Um, I'm, I'm lots curious, of other... Rich. I know because I know we're going to talk mainly about Lombardy. I don't think we're going to dwell too much on Paris Tour, but I'm curious to see now in the winter whether Arno Demar he he alters anything in his training, his preparation, his focus. Because last year he talked a very good game about having doubled down on his sprint training, and that he'd made up his mind. He was now a pure sprinter, and that's what he was going to be going forward. But yesterday suggested that uh, if he, well, doubled down on on other aspects of his of his riding, that he could be more of a sprinter, and he could perhaps have that future as a, as a classic specialist. Well, who knows? Um, in other races, roglification at Milano Torino ahead of uh, Primoz Roglic that is one there ahead of Adam Yates. It was a very kind of trademark Primoz Roglic victory to coincide with the new entry in the urban dictionary of the term roglification as coined by yourself daniel so the great i was not great, responsible great on great honor not, for you I, at the end i was of the season not as well. responsible for the entry in the dictionary though no absolutely not um matt walls won at grand priamonte the the sprinters classic in italy uh danny van poppel won banch shimmy banch uh Sarah Van Devel won the first women's edition of that race as well. Alessandro De Marchi um, had a terrible crash at the, the Giro, remember, after wearing the pink jersey. He's come back well, and he won at Tre Valley Varesini ahead of Davide Formolo in a two-up sprint, uh, a slow-motion sprint, as it was described by somebody on Twitter, to which De Marchi replied, slow but fast enough to win, my friend, which I thought was a great, a great riposte. Arlena Sierra won the first women's edition of that race. Um, Marion Roos had, has been appointed the first director of the Tour de France FAM. Uh, the route, as I said, will be announced on Thursday. Lots of expectations around that. Uh, she's been more famous in recent years as a consultant on France Television, a very um, respected consultant. I wonder if it will have any impact on her role there. Yeah, I'm not sure, Rich. I asked myself the same question, actually. Um, well, she, I would be very surprised. Well, she won't be. Well, she, she won't be working on French TV that week now. Um, I, I suspect she'll probably still be in the commentary box at the Tour de France, but it'll be a busy month for her, sure. Yeah, most of her commentary work is is on men's racing, isn't it? So it's possible that she could combine those roles. But uh, that will that will you know heading up to the first edition of that race while also working on the French TV commentary. That's going to be a big big old task. So we'll maybe find out a bit more on Thursday. You will probably talk about this, Rich, in the cycling podcast podcast feminine. But just um, sort of fag packet verdict on how that will that will be received in the, the, the realm of women's cycling. Um, because obviously 
maybe the most obvious thing to do would have been for Christian Prudhomme to take on that role as well but um, I can see why that hasn't happened or alternatively someone who is much more sort of closely in touch with women cycling on a day-to-day basis yeah I mean I think I'd be very interested to speak to some of the writers about it I think on the face of it she's a very well-known uh, figure isn't she now i mean her profile has risen enormously um as a result of her work on france televisions and that in itself is maybe a good thing for a new event that's just establishing itself um she will help to give the event a publicity profile um but you know the the job is not is much more than that isn't it you're not just a figurehead um it's a huge responsibility and an awful lot of work has to go into designing the route it, and all it that can, kind of thing it as well. can or can't be a race director can be more of an ambassador i mean prudhomme is, is more of an ambassador than he is an actual race director isn't he in terms of um you know but you always you always you do you do think do you not that he that his fingerprints are all over the route in terms of the overall maybe not the the minutiae but the the overall kind of feel and the the, the overall design in terms of weighting of mountain stages and time trials and so on yeah but there usually is a sort of sidekick isn't there who is more or less involved in as you say the minutiae in the tour de france's case that's thierry gouverneur indeed yeah well we'll we'll find out more about that but uh it's it's an interesting appointment and it got a, a, a blaze of publicity as you as you'd expect um the routes for Tour de France in 2022 and the Tour de France fam will be uh, revealed on Thursday in Paris. Of course, lots of rumours about um, where exactly we will be going, but we'll maybe touch on that at the end of this episode and obviously talk about it more fully later in the week. Um, the French team Delco, we admired their La Vie Claire outfits at Pirate Bay, but sadly they are no more as of today, Monday. Um, they have closed with immediate effect, financial difficulties, at the root of that they lost sponsors didn't they nipo and provence were both sponsors of that team uh, are now with um ef education nipo so um that team unfortunately has has gone after around 10 years under different names in the peloton cycling news is reporting that uae team emirates might t- take over the ali btc Ljubljana women's team that's a, a world tour team that this year starred malin russo though she's leaving for SD Works next year um, but that's a, an interesting development it's been rumoured for a few weeks that UAE Team Emirates were looking to add a women's team and uh, that in itself is interesting given that the sponsor is the UAE a place where women's sport is not really treated uh, as equally as men's sport so that's an interesting story I'm sure we will be covering that also in the cycling podcast Femina it was reported in the Italian media that Filippo Ganna did a 30-minute test. Well, in fact, Ghana himself said this in an interview, didn't he? That did a 30-minute test for the hour record after the Giro, which put him on course for 57 kilometres. Now, if you remember back to the Giro, Victor Campenarts told us that he had spoken to Ghana about the hour record and that Ghana had already at that point done a test. So I don't know if, that's, if there's a bit of confusion there and it's the same test, but... Um, the the problem that Camp and Arts thought Ghana would have would be, was his his sheer bulk, his size, um, which can pose particular problems uh, in a, you know over the course of an hour uh, riding around quite a tight track. And still on the hour record, Dan Bigham set a new British hour record. I don't think we've touched on this because we haven't had a podcast since he he did it. Um, Joss Loudon broke the women's hour record. That was mentioned in uh, the cycling podcast last week from the women's tour. We had an interview with Joss Loudon there, but. Bigham, her partner, um, set a new British hour record, beating Bradley Wiggins' previous distance. Um, his new mark is 54.723 kilometres, which is still a bit short of Victor Campenart's 55.089. A bit of transfer news. Ethan Vernon, the young British writer, is joining Quick Step for next year. Joe Dombrowski is off to Astana, Kazakhstan, as it will be known next year with all the cues. Um, we mentioned that rumour on the cycling podcast during the Vuelta. And Cherie Pridham uh, is joining Lotus Sudal from Israel's startup nation as a sports director. Only one season at Israel's startup nation, but she's off to the Belgian team. Um, Bahrain, uh, victorious, are letting a few riders go. Wout Poles, not sure where he's off to, but he's only been there one year. Scott Davis had a, an injury-plagued year, and he has not been offered a new contract there. Eros Kapeki as well is... Uh, 
is on his way from Bahrain victorious. Um, the UCI have helped people to leave Afghanistan, they have uh, revealed in a press release today, with the help of Sylvan Adams of Israel Startup Nation, the Asian Cycling Confederation and FIFA. They've participated in the evacuation of 125 Afghan citizens, including female cyclists and members of cycling management there, as well as artists, a judge, a member of a number of journalists and human rights campaigners, all of whom say the UCI have been able to reach Europe um, via Albania. Uh, 38 of them are being settled in Switzerland, with the others going to Canada, France, Israel and the USA. So uh, well done to the UCI in, in that role. Finally, the big news today, Naira Quintana appeared on Colombian television at as a masked chameleon, I do, I do urge you to dig out clips of was this. It a chameleon um, he was a chameleon or an iguana? A chameleon, a lizard, some kind of lizard. I thought it was a chameleon. Um, he was a come a come a come a come a come a chameleon. <laughs> oh, brilliant! He wasn't singing, singing that. What was he singing? He was singing. It was some awful rhythm remix of, the night. of rhythm of the rhythm night. Of the yeah, night. yeah, yeah. It was a Colombian version of the masked singer, which is not a program with which i'm familiar but a television show in which celebrities uh come on in these disguises and the other celebrities have to guess who they are based on their singing and i don't think anybody guessed that it was quintana but that's not maybe so much of a surprise no very much now in the pantheon isn't he of um cyclists turned turned troubadours um who else have yeah, we got I, I think that i think that clip's going to be resurfacing at fa fairly regular intervals but i definitely i knew that nairo man had this in his locker i've seen him we've seen him do this kind of thing before haven't we not well not dress up exactly as a an iguana or a chameleon and um and strut across well, a stage live on colombian tv but i mean wasn't who, live, who knows was daniel who knows i mean occasionally you do see mascots and other um elaborately costumed creatures at races it, it might have been Quintana all along. This is we true. just don't know. This is he true. might have been the he might have been the Bahrain mascot a few years ago, Falcon. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much indeed to Super Sapiens, the title sponsor of the Cycling Podcast across all our shows. And we're very grateful to them for their support. And if you would like to know more about the continuous glucose monitoring uh, devices that you can wear that uh, allow you to track your energy levels and uh, train more effectively and fuel more effectively, go to supersapiens.com. Uh, now, Daniel, Il Lombardia is the main topic on our agenda today. And, well, win by Tadej Pogacar, uh, you know, which just um, puts the kind of golden stamp on his season after Liège-Bastogne-Liège and the Tour de France. Um, I must say, this win caught me by surprise because I saw him at the World Championships and he looked... Um, he looked tired and as if he was somebody, you know, who who would gonna who was gonna bring the the curtain down on his season early and, and not extend it in the way that he has. But he's gone off to Italy. He's raced quite a lot and um, certainly uh, seemed to be getting a bit better again. And and in Lombardy, obviously riding very very well. He attacked on the Passo di Ganda, the the kind of crucial climb about forty kilometers from the finish. Still a long way to go. Um, De Koenig Quickstep had made a big, big effort going into the climb as if they were maybe setting up or going to set up Julian Alaphilippe. But uh, Pogacar just kind of slipped off off the front. Um, it wasn't a big sort of TV attack. We'd just seen one of those by Vincenzo Nibali. Um, and that did a bit of damage. Remco Evenepoel slipped off the back. Simon Yates as well was dropped at that point. Um, but uh, Pogacar kind of just stealthily appeared um, and you know the next moment he was off off the front um a few sketchy moments for him on the descent and uh, fausto masnada eventually bridged across um which was a curious tactic in a way because he'd already had a goal come back then done a bit of work to try and bring it back for alaphilippe and then gone again himself and we saw a stalemate in the chasing group behind but what did you make of it 
Well, Rich, you said you were slightly surprised by Pogacar winning. Um, I think what we've learned, or what we should have already learned about Tadej Pogacar is that among his... Uh, his vast panoply of other abilities, the, the the capacity to peak for objectives is is among them, um, is among his assets. You know, he he spoke I think during the summer after the Tour de France maybe about the Tour of Lombardy really being the last remaining objective of his year maybe after the Olympics, and. Uh, there were there were performances in the last few weeks that were slightly concerning, sp- particularly the Giro delle Emilia when he pulled out, didn't finish. But then uh, the Trevalli Varesine just a couple of days or three or four days before Lombardy, I th- I think he would have won that race had UAE not had um, Formola up the road. I think Pogacar was the strongest guy in the race, and you know consequently, a part of me expected him to pull out this sort of performance in Lombardy particularly in a race which was so hard is so hard with 4,500 meters of climbing that it's uh, it's not very tactical um it became tactical in the last 15 or 20 kilometers because of um well the way Masnada gave chase and we'll talk about that in a minute but um the strongest rider was always likely to win and you know talking about Pogacar's repertoire of abilities, probably the most underrated one, and I think an improving one as well, is how fast he is. And that just makes things so difficult for other teams, other riders. On Saturday, that certainly always looked likely to, well, to doom um, Masnada's efforts, doom whatever tactic whatever tactical move the Koenig quick step were trying to pull off and you know it makes him a well a likely winner of of classics um hilly classics and less hilly classics um not just this year but but going forward doesn't it it does absolutely he's um he's unlike uh most of the the recent sort of serial grand tour winners that we've seen in having that um in his in his armory that that sprint uh, when you say he's fast i presume that's what you mean it's a fast finisher because we know he's he's a fast why do people cyclist. not understand what i do why do people no, not understand I, this i do i do I've, understand I've, someone that. pulled me up on this recently <laughs> yeah i think it was a team press officer <laughs> he or she knows he or she knows who it was if you say someone's fast it means they're a fast finisher <laughs> going you know going forward whenever i say that okay okay excellent that's good that's good to know good to clear that up um yeah i mean he well he won the he won liege baston liege uh, in our group sprint didn't he and he might have won he almost won, he almost the, won it last well, year as well. silver yeah he almost won the silver medal in the olympic road race beat wout van Aert. i mean he came very close he did. there yeah he? it's true um so yeah he was definitely the favorite in that group and uh, you know in that group, I say, uh, I mean, uh, of he and Masnada. Masnada, the local boy, there seemed to be un- unusually some some uh, confusion around the, the tactics and strategy of the Koenig Quickstep because Masnada was in discussions with Davide Bramati, the sports director at the Koenig Quickstep, who was in the car. And at one point, it uh, seemed to be ordered to sit on Pogacar and then... Uh, I think he I think he sat on yeah. for for most of well the sort of 10 kilometers or so into yeah uh, and the bottom of the final climb in Bergamo didn't he I think the only the only time when he did take a pull was as when they got down to the bottom of the descent of the Paso de Ganda and there was possibly just a moment a minute there when he wasn't in radio communication with the team car and he didn't really know what to do and he did take a couple of pulls but otherwise he sat on didn't he yeah, I mean, um, he was he was obviously the wrong the wrong guy to have there, wasn't he, with Pogacar? And it was it was a bit, but I think it was one of those situations where there were so many big hitters in that group behind, and they were all kind of cagely watching each other. None of them had had teammates apart from Alaphilippe, and so really it was the teammate of the big hitter who was allowed to go up the road, and that. I mean, you could argue, you know, Sivakov was in a, a good position a bit earlier on on the claim as well. He still had Adam Yates there, so that was a and Vingegaard. Vingegaard was there as well, well for a bit too. But in the end, in the in, you know when we saw the real kind of stalemate, all those guys were a bit isolated and all just watching each other. And we we see it time and time again, and it does confuse people, doesn't it? When you see a group of that quality and they cannot organise themselves into any kind of chase, but. The reasons are are obvious. Um, nobody wants to commit more than anybody else, and so nobody ends up really committing anything at all. Um, 
And it, it, it was just a, a stalemate. Um, there was nobody in that group who would have been happy with ninth or 10th or 11th. So why on earth would they would they pull on the front? Um, but it is, it, I guess it's a bit disappointing to see it. I mean, was it a case that, you know, they were, they were um, running up the white flag because Pogacar had shown on that climb that he was the strongest and that he would also be dangerous in the sprint, or or was it just one of those one of those situations where it could have been any of them up the road and there would have been the same scenario behind? I think it's easy to relitigate after the fact, isn't it? I think probably De Kooning Quickstep would have been better uh, using Masnada to to chase down Pogacar or try to chase down Pogacar and um, with Vinga guys it turned out because you know as you said they were the, the two teams that had had the options there because uh, Masnada was a dead man walking as soon as he well when he was trying to get across to Pogacar and when he did get across to Pogacar I didn't think there was any chance of him beating Pogacar in the sprint um, just a word Rich, uh, you as someone with you know elite cycling experience, um, still ride at a very high level. <laughs> um, the, the 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 descent of the so well, the, the, it was the descent of the Paso de Ganda, but it's it's actually more well known sort of locally as the Selvino on the way up, and it's this um, it's quite an easy climb, nice climb to do going up, but a lot of hairpins and. Masnada t- took a significant amount of time back on Pogacar there, which you might say is not surprising because he obviously knows it. But he had quite a curious descending technique, which I, I mean, you can tell me whether I'm right or wrong. I think that's got more to do with, well, it's, it is to do with the, the, the way that the hairpins go on the Salvino. They're, they're quite flat, the hairpins. Mm. And it means you can go right round the outside rather than Pogacar was trying to take the inside of the bend, which, you know, normally is what you should do when you're descending and take them as tight as possible. Whereas uh, Masnada was sort of, he was going around them like a, the sort of curve of a velodrome and, and taking slingshot out of them. And he was the one that was making up a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite surprising that he was able to bridge across, really, to Pogacar. Um, but I think the the problem Pogacar had on the he had these, these two in particular sketchy moments. And th- those do, I think, cost you quite a bit of time. The second one in particular, uh, where his, his wheel locked up. Um, and I think he lost a bit of speed there. Whereas Masnada had a fairly clear run, so I'm not sure if he was going faster or whether he just gained on him uh, through those those wobbles that Pogacar had. But I don't know. I mean, local knowledge maybe maybe was a factor there. And in spite of those couple of wobbles, I think in real terms Pogacar was going pretty fast because I, I did take a look at Strava and his time on Selvino. Selvino, oh sorry, the, that descent is a descent that will have been done tens of thousands of times and tens of thousands of times that have been logged on Strava. On Strava. And I think he had the third fastest time ever. Wow. Um, in spite of those few wobbles. I mean, they are, you know, they are dangerous uh, roads, aren't they? Um, those, those uh, we, we saw that last year with Evnipol had that horrific crash. And I think for him, uh, it was important to just finish the the race without without any kind of incident, which he which he did. He was he was nineteenth in the end, um, but they're not they're not the sorts of mountain passes that the riders do typically in in Grand Tours, are they? They're tighter roads, certainly tighter hairpins, um, and you know challenging racing roads. I would say. Yeah, it's always a characteristic of Lombardy. Um, we've seen it as well in the Giro d'Italia in that region um, in Lombardy. We saw um, the stage that finished in Como in 2019, which was almost like a mini Giro where Primoz Roglic, um, well, he gave up certainly some, if not all, of his chances of winning the Giro. Um, they're, they're slightly different from the roads you get in the Dolomites. The descents tend to be, well, smoother. The road surface is generally smoother and wider and you don't get these sort of big drop-offs precipices that you sometimes get in the Italian Alps and um, yeah definitely an underestimated facet of the Tour of Lombardy the the descents every year. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport fueled by science. Thanks very much to Science and Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast going back many years and across all of our shows. Um, Grateful to them. And if you would like 25% off all your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25, as I did last week. And a couple of days later, a huge consignment arrived of 
blackcurrant flavoured gels, blueberry flavoured energy bars and orange flavoured energy bakes. I uh, I took a batch with me at the weekend on my ride and shared them out among my group and uh, they were all very appreciative. So spreading the word. Thanks very much, Science and Sport. Now, Daniel, um, Pogachar, um, the it was a, a pogcineration, I think that's the official term, is it? We expect to see that in the oh, Urban God. Dictionary soon. Um, but uh, what about the pogacy, the pog legacy? Uh, because... He has, what is he, 23, and he's this year won two monuments and the Tour de France. And there are these comparisons already with Merckx. I mentioned the exclusive club, I think Copy Merckx Eno. Um, he joins those, that sort of company, you know, which is, is, is in itself pretty remarkable. He said afterwards he just likes, he just loves to race his bike. He likes to attack, he enjoys racing, and, and it's all it's all fun, um, which, which doesn't sort of... Uh, doesn't encourage comparisons with Merckx in a way because it, it was it, Merckx was quite different in the way that he went about his career and 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 winning races. It was a more I don't know uh, more of a kind of primal need that he had. Uh, you don't get the impression that that's the case with Pagachar, but you know how does he already stand up against those kinds of riders? You're you're the Merckx expert, of course. Well, I'm not sure about the, the Merck's the Merck's part. The, the Merck's biographer, anyway. Um, well, it's interesting to make the comparison, isn't it, Rich? Um, as, as sort of redundant as con- comparisons always are in sport, but if you look at where they are in there, or where Pogacar is in his career, and, and sort of you find a similar set point in Merck's career. I mean, 1969 was the year when Merck's won the Tour, but that was that was his first. Tour de France appearance and he won it but prior to that in 1968 he'd won his first Giro d'Italia and his first Grand Tour had been the year before that in 1967 so sort of his third year 1969 Merckx also would have won the Giro that year had he not tested positive and been kicked out midway through the race but so three years in that's more or less where Pogacar is now and you know they, they are relatively similar the one huge difference and the reason that comparisons are very difficult is that the the whole rhythm and cadence of the season for the top riders is totally different now i mean Merckx in 1969 raced 129 times and he won on 32 occasions this year pogacar has raced 56 times 56 race days and he's won on 13 of those days well he's won 13 times some of those are general classification wins um so you're talking about around about a quarter of their race days both Merckx in 1969 and Pogacar this year um, uh, were were winning were victorious so as you say though quite different very different in their sort of presentation there's this sort of almost matter of fact certainly childlike air about Pogacar Um, our friend our Italian friend Leonardo Piccione wrote something about this at the weekend about how Pogacar is a very difficult he, he he poses sort of narrative challenges because there is no there is no sort of edge or no angst or no noticeable notable sort of adversity that he's yet had to overcome in his career and that makes him sort of difficult to pigeonhole characterize this is what leonardo wrote just a couple of sentences um in these very first Shintillas of his career, Pogacar has appeared immune to weakness. Not once has he succumbed to anger, discomfort, exhaustion, vertigo, or any strong emotion. We've never seen him in tears. Snow white in skin and jersey colour, he's suspended in a kind of celestial sphere of perfection, as though a dimension away from all of his rivals. And yeah, there is something sort of unreachable about him, uh, maybe because it is so extraordinary that someone, you know, with such a, a sort of nonchalance is able to do what he's done. L'Equipe wrote something similar on Sunday, but theirs was more, there was, there was perhaps just a hint of innuendo about what they were, um, they said about his win in the Tour of Lombardy, that again, similar things, difficult to characterise. Someone that, a personality or rider who's seems to slip through the fingers of of anyone trying to trying to sort of get a grasp of him Lekeep said at the weekend um but 
you know that that lack of kind of that lack of angst that lack of of um of, of anxiety as well and uh, the sort of tortured air that Merck's had it has definitely been a characteristic of of his success so far and I think it's a key reason for his success that whatever it is whether it's his upbringing or just his you know sort of genetic endowment he's very lucky to be one of these guys who is able to maintain or has been able to maintain um, the same sort of childlike spirit that thus far in spite of you know great success um, some expectations certainly now I mean this was something we spoke about whether it was on the podcast or in private I've spoken to various people this year about you know whether he should have gone to the Vuelta I remember at the tour speaking to people in his team about you know whether he should honour this supposed commitment he had to go to the Vuelta and talking about the fact that it would have been seen perceived as a failure had he not won the Vuelta Um, he didn't go there so he avoided that but um, he, he hasn't seemed burdened in any way by any of that um, so far. No, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of comparisons um, it, just in terms of personality among those, those, those great champions of, you know, of the past. And I can't really, can't really think of any at all. Um, you know, Greg LeMond had the boyishness, but, but not that carefree spirit at all. You know, he was riddled with anxieties and insecurities and, Pagachar has none of that. You've mentioned this before, Daniel, but you, you, you touched on the innuendo and th- that could be the adversity that he faces, the the questioning, the the suspicion that, that might arise from uh, his performances, you know, purely from his performances. And that, that innuendo, that suspicion is bound to come if his performances remain at, at the level that they're at and he carries on, on winning. Um, and, and especially if he becomes a, the, the dominant player because in that, situation we saw it with with chris froome that's really the only story isn't it it's is this guy who's winning all the time is he clean and that can put a real strain on a rider whether they've got something to hide or not it's just you know and we we, we sort of saw it a little bit at the tour this year with Bogachar that he was a slightly exasperated at at some of the, the questions didn't really know how to answer them sometimes and that could be his his adversity over the next uh, couple of years and it might be it might be the thing that um, defines these years in terms of, of whether he carries on like this or whether, whether you know, that uh, derails him or knocks him off course ever so slightly. Yeah, and, and I think it's uh, a recurring theme of all these riders that have had these, that have built these dynasties, certainly with Merck's um, 68, 69. So, you know, the equivalent point, as I said, in his career was the time when even before the positive test in Savona, there were questions, questions started to be asked about, you know, um, him having some kind of secret recipe or some kind of advantage, um, the, the, maybe something sinister over other, other riders. The, the other thing in Merckx's case, I think in sort of 68, 69, there was a sort of resignation that started to kick in among, um, among his would-be rivals. And, and, but there was also a, a hostility that started to take root among... I, I get, the, get the feeling that that fans used to be more partisan and particularly more patriotic. And certainly in France, there was a bit of a groundswell of opposition towards Merckx among the supporters. Pogacar is a very difficult guy to dislike. You might say there isn't, there aren't, there aren't that many things, uh, well, it really depends on your opinion, aren't that many things to love about him or to intrigue or to fascinate about him thus far. But he's very difficult to dislike, I would say. And that will, that will serve him um, well, I think. Um, that will, will help him to keep that that sort of looseness which has been a characteristic of his riding so far. Indeed, and uh, you know, he is somebody who's also at times been prepared to let a teammate have a bit of glory. You know, mentioned uh, Formolo, um, who, who he's very close to um, uh, last week, and, and others. Mike has been a, a very good teammate for him this, this year as well. Um, any other notable performances in Lombardy? I mean, were you surprised that Roglic didn't, didn't, wasn't more more Roglic-like. Um, it was uh, sort of shades of liege Baston liege when, uh, having been distanced, him and Adam Yates were, were, were distanced on that last climb. Um, they appeared uh, on the back of the, the group that had left them behind to, to contest the podium between them. So it was actually Yates uh, won that sprint ahead of 
Roglic, but it was a bit like uh, a bit like Liege Bastille on the edge. But were you a bit surprised by Roglic, or or is it is this just you know we we've seen uh, Pogacar on this kind of seesaw of form where he he can be really good in one race, just a bit off color in the next, and there's no. Um, sort of overriding theme to these races. The the riders, you know, Alaphilippe at the Worlds, Roglic last week, Pogacar at the weekend, they seem to be um, on this this very kind of slight seesaw. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Roglic was everyone's favourite, wasn't he? Um, due to his performances the previous week, particularly his win at Milan Turin. But the, the route in Lombardy didn't suit him quite as well. Um, the, the, if anyone was going to sort of go away on their own, break away on their own, it was probably going to be, um, well, if not on the Paso de Ganda where Pogacar almost managed it, it was going to be on the climb up to the the old town in Bergamo. And that was really an explosive climb that suited maybe an Alaphilippe much better than it did a Roglic. But, you know, it was essentially, we mentioned the, the metres of, of climbing, 4,500 metres of climbing in Lombardy. It was a Tour de France or a Grand Tour mountain stage. And, you know, many times have we seen Roglic sort of come in third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Um, he hasn't won every... Grand Tour mountain stage in the last four or five years. So it was kind of, it was a normal day at the office as, as far as Roglic was concerned um, with a finish that didn't particularly suit him and probably a day when, you know, um, he wasn't quite at his best. Um, but, you know, he still finished fourth. And uh, Yates was interesting in that I found myself sort of reflecting on his first season at Ineos and, you know, trying to decide how much of a success it had been. I mean, I think he's he's had a good year. Um, he particularly has finished the season very well, was in the top five at the Vuelta España, finished fourth overall there. A lot of, well, a lot of, of top five finishes throughout the season. Um, one Volta a Catalunya, which was obviously a big highlight, second at UAE Tour. So actually, um, probably a better season than people realise. And, uh, you know, the only... The only question mark with Yates, I suppose, is going forward, is he going to be a leader for Ineos, the sole leader in a Grand Tour, um, given that they've got Carapaz and Bernal? What exactly is his status? What are his in, sort of intentions going forward, um, particularly as far as Grand Tours are concerned? But yeah, really consistent and a really good year for him. Yeah, um, it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting sort of off-season for Ineos, I think, to look at what, what they have and, and what they do with what they have next year i'm sure we'll be talking about that over the winter before we um we go uh, from this episode daniel i did mention parry tour um we did talk about it a bit already but um you know a a really entertaining race um they've really mixed it up the last uh the last couple of years and it is ironic that what was a sprinter's race and now isn't really a sprinter's race was won by a rider who we think of as a sprinter but he's shown on occasions, you know, he won Milan San Remo. I remember a stage at, at Paris that he won up a quite a, quite a hard climb. Um, Arnaud Demar got away with Jasper Stuyven, another good sprinter, and they had to the, to chase the two up front. Frank Bonamore was there, um, Stan de Wolf as well, and it was a, a, a thrilling kind of pursuit race between them. And in the end, uh, Stuyven and Demar just got across and both of them were fully committed to that to that chase um they got across just in time demar started the sprint from the front very cleverly uh boxed stoyven in or managed to maneuver it so that stoyven was boxed in at the start of the sprint and uh, a terrific win by him um after a very very exciting race and, and it, ha- it is a race whose fortunes have faded a bit can it can it be sort of resurrected as a major one-day race, and particularly in this slot at the end of the season? Do you know what I thought watching it, Rich? It really misses De Kernink quick step because yes, they well, they, Patrick Lefebvre had a bit of a strop, didn't he? Um, That's three right. Years ago, when they changed the route and they started using these um, vineyard paths, and he said it was sort of Mickey Mouse and gimmicky, and that the team wasn't going to come anymore. Because uh, Rebe- he's never been to Pirate Bay, uh, Patrick. Lefebvre, <laughs> obviously, but. It feels to me not only are they sort of throwing away a huge opportunity to win quite a prestigious race because they have got the best team in the world for this kind of course, but also they're 
denying us um, uh, a big part of, of a fantastic spectacle because they that's a team that always makes the race, um, whatever the terrain. They're always aggressive, as we saw in Lombardy. And yeah, I, th- I think it's just a shame that they're not there, as uh, as is the case for a few World Tour teams who who consistently don't mm. now go to Paris Tour. Yeah, and that 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 does diminish it a bit. It was great to see some, you know, Jasper Philipson was another one, you know, a sprinter, a bunch sprinter, just doing something a bit different and and racing in a different way, as we saw with Damar. It's it's nice to be reminded that those guys are more, you know, that they can they can come out there pigeonhole and be more than just a guy who we see in the final two hundred meters of a of a flat stage. Um, it's it's a nice thing to be reminded of, and uh, yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed that race. The, the final. The final sort of half hour of it were absolutely thrilling and up there with the best racing I've seen this year. But as you say, it is it is diminished by um, some notable absentees. Is it diminished as well, Rich, by the inherent risk of punctures? Um, there were a lot of riders, well, including uh, Connor Swift, who's who was in good form again for Arkea. He had a couple of punctures, I think, and and there were well, there were um, Frederick Frison as well in the in the front group. Um, he also punctured, and and that ended his chances. Um, yeah, again, you know more about equipment these days, and you know what tubeless tyres and so forth can do. But it strikes me that either the the risk of punctures is maybe too high and they need to reduce the number of these vineyard sections um, to, to reduce the likelihood of punctures conditioning the race or teams need to pay a little bit more attention to which tyres they're using, whether they're using tubeless or not, because um, the, the risk of puncture seems even higher here than it is at Paris-Roubaix. Well, I mean, the thing is, you would never have this discussion about Paris Bay. I mean, Jenny Moscon would would probably have won Paris Bay had he not punctured and then crashed, and maybe maybe crashed because um, he was on a bike where the the tires were perhaps pumped too hard. Um, yeah, you know, there's been a lot of talk about that. There's been a lot of talk. There was on the day, wasn't there, of Paris-Roubaix. And um, I saw an interesting interview with uh, with one of the Ineos mechanics um, in, on an Italian website, Bici Pro, where he said that the, it, it was likely that on his original bike, the tyre pressure had gone down mm. um, over the course of the race. But the, the bike that was taken off the, the, well, the replacement bike, um, it had the same pressure as his first bike had had in the morning. But yeah, by the time they took it off, it was the, the tyres were probably a little bit harder and maybe too hard. I mean, this is a, this is actually a fascinating topic. Lizzie Dagnan in her post-race uh, press conference said that she had ridden uh, Pirate Bay and won Pirate Bay at a tyre pressure of 3.2 bar. 3.2 bar is what she said, which is very, very low indeed. And... Riders are riding practi- practically punctured. Practically punctured. They are riding lower um, pressures. Uh, this is something that Lizzie Banks and Tom Wally are going to cover in next week's service course. Actually, the whole issue of equipment, especially as it related to Pyro Bay, because um, there were some interesting equipment choices there. There was, you know, you know uh, Sonny Colbrelli um, punctured as well, but was able to carry on because of the tubeless tires he was using, etc. It is quite an interesting topic, but that's uh, an ever-present risk at Paris Bay, just as much as it is, I think, at Paris Tour. And um, you know, it's a bit rich for Patrick Lefebvre to complain about about the the risk of to equipment at, at Paris Tour, given some of the the races and the terrain that they uh, they use in Belgium and in northern France for Paris Bay. So. Yeah, anyway. Um, listen, Daniel, we're going to be convening again later in the week with uh, Lionel if he can uh, bring himself to leave his new friends Lizzie and Rose behind and, and rejoin us on the Cycling Podcast to talk about the Tour de France next year. What are you hoping for from the Tour de France route? What's your What's your number one wish? Uh, I think we know most of the route already, don't we? Uh, I think the, the sort of headline acts of the Tour de France or the... Don't spoil uh, Thursday's episode. Well, I think it's, we're going to begin to Alpe d'Huez, aren't we? Um, I think. Well, we we always look at the we're rest. Definitely days. going to Copenhagen, uh, and then yeah, La Planche de Belfi is very strongly rumored. Cobbles are strongly are strongly rumored as well. 
I, I, based on what I've seen, Rich, I think it's going to be a very mountainous Tour de France. And I don't think there's anything to discourage Tadej Pogacar from going to the Tour. You know, occasionally, if if the route is seems to be heavily weighted in one direction, whether it's towards time trials or, or mountains, we get even defending champions of the Tour deciding that they're going to go elsewhere. It, it did... It did occur to me at the weekend that when he was at the Giro di Lombardia, he was probably being heavily schmoozed by RCS, who are also the organisers of the Giro. And I'm sure they will have they will have fluttered their eyelashes at <laughs> Tadej Pogacar over the, course, over the course of the last few months, if not at the Maro weekend. Maro Vengi fluttering his eyelashes at well, Tadej what, Pogacar. I mean, what is the likelihood, do you think, of, of him trying, attempting the double? Um, I think the chances of him doing something like that are quite high because of his team's Italian roots. You know, he rides a Calnago bike and it's not a team that is beholden to the Tour de France, perhaps in a way that other teams are. They don't have a conventional sponsor. You know, they it, it, is, it is a vanity project in a way. And you could, you know, I, I'm sure the team's management, many of whom have strong Italian connections, could make the case for him you know especially given the trajectory he's now on of of Merck's like gobbling up races um that might become the 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 goal of his career rather than be a serial tour de france winner which i don't really think fits with his personality to 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 organize his season in the same way every year um to one year uh come and try and win the Giro. And why not win the Giro and the Tour? I mean, if anybody's capable of doing that, it's surely Pagacar. So I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him at the Giro in the next couple of years. Hmm. He's also, his youth has something to do with it as well because, you know, he has time on his side. You know, he could, he, he could uh, mix things up. He doesn't have, he's not a 27-year-old who's just won his first Tour and now needs to maximise the next four years or five years. He could, he could, um, do something quite novel if he wanted to world championships next year rich in australia and we don't expect them to be well the hilliest world championships not the road race anyway and it, well, that's that's also been a, a sort of excuse a pretext used by riders in the past not to attempt the double hasn't it that they've you know they they have two goals in the season and they are the world championships and the tour de france i, I don't think that that will necessarily be too much of a distraction for Pogacar next year. So it could be the year. I mean, we'll have to see how the the Giro d'Italia route is shaping up. Um, another reason he may want to go there is um, the proximity of Slovenia to Hungary. The mm-hmm. Giro, of course, starting in Hungary. Um, how much? How much? Uh, that will influence his decision. I, I don't know. I doubt it will have a huge influence. I think he'll do a year on gravel as well, Daniel. You know, why not? No. You know. <laughs> anyway, um, let's leave it there. And we'll be back on Thursday evening with uh, the Tour de France route for 2022 with Lionel. He can, he can focus on the food and drink. Um, you can tell us about the mountains and I'll think of something. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you sort of some insights into the... The, the northern Fre- French elements of the tour route for next year. Bureaucracy. But in, French until, bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah. Until then, thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, Rich. To become a friend of the podcast or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Our theme music is by Glass Pear, and this episode was produced by Hugh Owen. <laughs>